Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. With us today is Mike Manrod, CISO at Grand Canyon Education, and we're going to talk about vishing and smishing. Mike, thanks for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you, Alan. Good to be here. First, a brief word about our sponsor. Time is the enemy of cybersecurity. Time spent identifying devices that are missing endpoint agents with known vulnerabilities that are unmanaged, that need updates. Time spent identifying cloud instances that aren't being scanned, that are misconfigured. Time spent gathering asset data. Time is the enemy of cybersecurity until Axonius. By connecting to existing data sources, customers get a comprehensive asset inventory, understand security gaps, and automatically validate and enforce security policies. Thank you, Axonius, for sponsoring this show. All right, so why don't we start with the usual question. Tell us how you got into cybersecurity and what you're doing in cybersecurity now. Well, it was quite an adventure. I was a mid-career transplant about a decade ago, and it was funny. I was sometimes the guy annoyed with how cybersecurity got in the way of our other technology projects. And then a friend of mine drug me along to DEF CON on his plus one as a speaker, and my eyes were opened. I looked around, and one, I could see the criticality of the topic, and two, I just absolutely fell in love with cyber, and the rest is history. I worked through a variety of roles, and right now I serve as the CISO for Grand Canyon Education. That's the best origin story I've heard on the podcast yet. I got to say this for real. Started off antagonistic towards cyber, dove in, got the value, saw it and came across, and now you've made it all the way to CISO. So clearly you've really internalized it. But what do you do? What's the daily life like for your CISO role? Well, the daily life of a CISO, I think, can vary a lot. Sometimes the role is administrative over a very, very large security org, and sometimes it's more technical. I'd say for me, it's much more technical. I've tried to keep one foot always in engineering. There's always products that I support. I'm on change windows late at night every week. And if there's an incident or an attack, I roll up my sleeves and get in there with the rest of the team. So I would say it's a mixture of meetings, but maybe sometimes it's more fun when it's time to cancel the meetings and troubleshoot or respond to something. Fantastic. Rolling up the sleeves in the face of the uh, the IR there. I can well relate with that lifestyle. So let's talk about vishing then for a little bit. So I guess, first of all, for our audience who may not know, very quick, five-second definition, what is vishing and smishing? So vishing and smishing is represents impersonated communications where anywhere from an attacker to just somebody who's opportunistic and maybe pushing the edges of the law historically, it's impersonating a communication either over voice for vishing or over text message for smishing. All right. So let's walk through a typical vishing attack. And I'm specifically wanting to know from the enterprise targeted variant, like how widespread is that? I know I personally have received all kinds of weird vishing and smishing attempts against my personal cell phone. But what is the enterprise perspective there? What, how often are these campaigns targeting enterprise and how are they doing that? Like what's going on there? Well, I'd say there's two tiers, right? There's the really scary but pretty rare level of vishing. And then there's the super, super common but more annoying kind of vishing, right? The scary scenario is someone is actually masquerading as a phone number they're not and an identity they're not using a really good social engineering pretext to manipulate various parts of your process to reach a point where they can actually carry out a very, very damaging compromise. 
whether it's convincing someone to make a wire transfer, convincing somebody to install a file that leads to an initial foothold, all of those types of classical stories. And those types of attacks are so much more believable. If I look at my caller ID and I see the name pop up of somebody that I trust or should trust or a, a phone number that's an internal DID range. So that's kind of the first, the scary category. The less scary category, but the one we all see all the time constantly is the robo-dial automated, getting you to maybe buy something you shouldn't, click something you shouldn't, convincing you, a variety of different scams. Those are the more common ones, but they're still quite an annoyance and a time suck. Yeah, so I've experienced in the past live, not necessarily vishing, but live attempts from calling parties to, I never knew what the ultimate end game was, but I've been on the personal end of receiving a phone call where somebody was like name dropping someone else in the organization. You know, Bill referred me to you. Now, what's your role? And you can tell it's somebody trying to map out the roles in the company. Now, I, I that could be something really nefarious, but I always assumed it was somebody trying to poach something more of the recruiter space with maybe a, a little bit of an ethical uh, challenge on their end. But how much is that sort of same phenomenon? Like you described these end games where things could be truly bad. How often are they doing that? Walking the hierarchy? Are they trying to get to an end goal of like, is this kind of like business email compromise? Are they trying to get to a point where they're transferring money, impersonating the leader of the company? What is the ultimate end goal of some of these these more evil campaigns, the rarer and more evil ones? Well, yeah, again, they're pretty numerous, but I would say the more evil ones are when they're attempting to say, get a help desk to put in a bypass of a security control impersonating, say, an exec high-pressure user. You know, you call in, you get an entry-level person with some access and put them under pressure and make them think you're somebody else. That's a, a common one we see in social engineering challenges and contests in terms of like the DEF CON type context. And I actually think the fraudulent wire transfer or even just bulk fraud is super common. And we even see like it's parallel on dating and social media sites where people prey on emotion to get somebody to make a decision that's bad and maybe give up some money. I mean, I think that's probably part of sometimes a vishing type angle as well. Just convincing somebody you're somebody you're not with a good pretext so that they give you money. I mean, sometimes it's that simple. Yeah, this is the same thing as the spear phishing and the and the whaling and the business email compromise, that same sort of target where ultimately you're trying to you're trying to get the payload of money or the payload of info, right? Intel. So smishing now is another variant. You mentioned that that's text message based, SMS based. Um, how does that compare to vishing and phishing when it comes to the enterprise targeted attacks? Like how often do you see smishing as the as the vehicle for an enterprise attack as opposed to once again, I get a thousand of these things a week that are fake Amazon this and fake UPS shipment that. But how many of these are enterprise targeted? And, and if they're enterprise targeted, what does that look like from the smishing perspective? So from the smishing perspective, I've seen personally very little enterprise targeted use. On the enterprise targeted side, I think there's been a lot more buzz about SIM swapping or social engineering where you can actually take the phone number for a brief bit of the person who maybe is about to get a multi-factor challenge text or something like that. But I've seen very little enterprise use of smishing personally to date. So what does most of it turn out to be then when we talk about the stuff that's aimed at individuals? I've seen, you know, I'm assuming every one of these links is basically attempting to install malware or get my account credentials, right? I had never clicked on a single one of the links. I couldn't tell you what they're really trying to do. But is that the end game? Is that the two most common end games? 
Yeah, I would say the three most common endgames would be, yeah, introduce malware to the device, which again, maybe happens in bulk. And then when something is found valuable through bulk compromise, it escalates to that next level. Obviously, harvesting user credentials, often sometimes these bulk campaigns are somebody lower tier, harvesting them and then selling them to somebody higher tier. So often, just like large botnets, often are very commodity in how they're rounded up, but sometimes much more targeted in how they're used or who rents them out. Right. So that gets me to thinking about the back end. I know, you know, ransomware as a service, for example, is a thing. You can be a non-technical criminal and go to 1-800-RANSOMWARE, basically, and <laughs> pick from the pricing models and which tier you want and what level of support you want or need and get help desk support from the ransomware authors, launch an active, legitimate ransomware campaign, completely take out a business, demand the Bitcoin in return, and get tech support from the ransomware authors You know, to shore up the fact that you're not even a technical criminal, you're just a criminal criminal. I assume that in the smishing world, we see that same sort of stuff, that there may even be hierarchies of technical and non-technical folks, that some of these smishing campaigns, in other words, might not even be being run by the people that know how to author such a campaign. It's a tool being run by somebody else who's basically just paid money to use the tool or to use it as a service. Like how, do, you know, how, how deep down the rabbit hole does the smishing world go? And is it like that ransomware world? I would say for both smishing, vishing, and robocalling, it's very much as a service. It seems to follow the same model where you'll have somebody with the technical know-how who's building a framework and then lower tier users. And the interesting thing is a couple of the campaigns I investigated recently, I assumed were actually illegal, malicious, and it turned out they were barely legal predatory marketing practices. So often these tools are created just like a lot of the hacking tools out there in other realms, and they could be used legally or illegally, and we see this confusing overlap of both. Yeah, because sometimes it's definitely skeezy, but it's not something you can actually call the cops and say, go arrest this guy. It's just skeezy. Definitely. All right. Well, Gavin Smith, one of our LinkedIn readers, asked the following question. He said, where do you think the responsibility lies? with blocking smishing messages. In other words, the domain registrar hosting the malicious domain, the ISP for not taking proactive attempts to block the messages. Is it the domain? Is it the cellular mobile network? Like where and how should the ownership of stopping smishing happen? Who's, whose burden should this be? And whose burden is this today? Kind of both really. Like where is it and where should it be? I think that it's really got to be a top down. And I think the FCC has done a great job recently of kind of stepping up and laying down the law quite literally with the Trace Act. I feel like the Telephone Robocall Abuse Criminal Enforcement and Deterrence Act is really stepping up both to add fines for the shady use by legitimate companies, and then also to begin to enforce stir and shaken for both vishing and smishing, which I know we'll get into here in a moment. But basically, I feel like the, the first level is the FCC needs to take the lead because otherwise there will be those who don't step up to the plate. And then I think it's got to be the telecom providers that implement a trust model. I mean, we've seen it done successfully with email. We have DKIM, we have DMARC, we have SPF. We really need the parallels for the vishing and smishing realm both. And that's what stir and shake and become. 
yeah, that's a good analogy. I hadn't thought about that with the fishing, but you're right. There's a there's a number of technologies now. To be fair, some of those technologies in the fishing world are opt-in technologies, right? If not everyone is doing it, the value isn't there. You have to voluntarily participate in the program, and I don't think there's any legislative body sort of ramming. DKIM or DMARC or SPF, any of these through, but obviously it's in all of our interest to participate, right? So I wonder with vishing and smishing, if we if we get an FCC mandate, will it be the thing fishing is missing and will it force it through? And I guess that that's we might as well start talking about it. You mentioned stir shaken. Let's talk a little bit about what stir slash shaken is. Uh, what does that stand for? What does that mean? What are they actually doing? And then let's compare that to the fishing world and talk about centralized enforcement versus something more voluntary like the fishing, the opt-in models. So stir and shaken seem to be a really good start to an answer. And it's a series of RFCs really that have accumulated over the years, which maybe we won't go all the way into, but basically the acronym STIR stands for Secure Telephone Identity Revisited. And shaken stands for Signature-Based Handling of Asserted Information Using Tokens. Obviously a throwback to uh, James Bond and the late Sir Sean Connery. So our, our timing of these discussions really is perfect to honor him with Shaken and Stirred. But basically, it's a collection of different RFCs describing different technical requirements that when put together and enforced end-to-end with lots of work, will address the root cause of vishing and eventually smishing too. Okay, so yeah, eventually smishing. So let's table that bit for a moment because I want to circle back with the smishing piece of it. But in terms of the vishing, here we are. We've got this new collection of RFCs. These are standards. Now, what you're saying is the FCC is not just saying, here's some RFCs. Everyone, please go adopt or here's some standards we'd like you to use. They're actually enforcing this centrally with legislation saying stir and shaken are a mandate. Is that correct? That is, yes, absolutely correct. Basically, there is now a June 30th deadline for all IP-based networks, you know, phone networks to implement stir and shaken. And then by June 30th, they also asked for good faith efforts with more of the legacy platforms. And that really is one of the biggest problems is end to end, you might start out with an IP-based network, you might transition across TDM, land on cellular, and then go back a different path. So you end up with all these different paths. And the process of implementing something like stir and shaken across all of them with a consistent end-to-end trust model is actually more difficult than it might seem. Yeah, when I got my master's degree, um, it's not a pure InfoSec degree. It was information systems and security. And one of the classes on the information systems side of the house was uh, it was a hardback book on nothing other than carrier-grade networks and what that world looks like, the legacy up through the IP and the modern world. And I'm telling you, man, the deltas between the legacy infrastructure and the IP-based infrastructure, when that change happened, all that legacy stuff is still there. And it was crazy. Part of what they've done is they've done it to themselves in the sense that there was so much of a need for resiliency and so much of a need for things to never go down that they basically built gear that never went down. (laughs) And so now it's really easy to say, hey, this 30-year-old piece of stuff that's still blinking and humming and going and the, the, you know, the, the, the calls are flowing in and out and it's never crashed and let's keep using it. And the modern transition over to IP, obviously, and we could get into a whole nother conversation about the legislative impetus and all that other stuff too. It's not just a technology change to go from the traditional carrier networks to the IP networks. There's also legislative reasons to be on one versus the other and barriers of entry to transition from one to the other. That's really fascinating to me. So the FCC is going to push this and mandate it for IP. And then for the legacy guys, they basically are encouraged. 
and to your point, that's, I don't know, that still feels like the dam has got a few leaks in it if we try to solve the problem that way. I agree. I mean, I feel like it's a great step in the right direction. But at the end of the day, this really comes down to one problem. And that problem is that the from value always has been user supplied and arbitrary. And then there's been reluctance to correct it because a lot of companies rely on being able to buy ranges in, say, other states or being able to impersonate DID ranges for sales purposes. There's a lot of legit reasons that muddy the waters as well in trying to deal with the illegitimate use of this. Yeah, you've got an entire user base of people who probably, I would even say, as many as 30% of them are leveraging that capability for legitimate reasons and want to keep doing that. And then you get the fact that this is where we're getting into a level of technical detail beyond my knowledge. But I remember back in the day of running internal PBXs internal to the company, and I'm talking like Lucent gear, so I'm, I'm dating myself here. But I remember that we could internally manipulate caller ID fields and whatever we inherited from outside, we could actually alter on its way in through our own PBX. This wasn't just uh, everybody wants to do this at the carrier level and be able to do impersonation for various reasons. Even local connections in the circuitry, you know, at least on the legacy systems, can alter and transpose data in some of those fields as well. And that becomes very confusing because even if you could get all the carriers to buy in, right, am, am I right here that identity could still be spoofed on a local PBX even if the carrier did completely comply, right? You could, yeah. Now, I feel like there will be a point where Stir and Shaken have an end-to-end -end enforced trust hierarchy based on these tokens. And at that time, the problem really will get better. But the very first steps are, as you allude to, unlikely to solve the problem. It'll be just that, a first step. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and I'm also trying to picture a token RFC that can straddle that, that divide from the legacy carrier infrastructures to the modern IP infrastructures. And that's that's a daunting challenge from a technical perspective to try to figure out a token schema that would transition all those networks. And to your point, yeah, you could hit cellular, you could hit IP, you could hit, yeah, okay. I see what's in front of them from a technical perspective. I don't envy their challenge. But I think you're right. It's going to have to be end-to-end -end before it's going to be useful to anybody. It really is. And if you want a good read some night, you can't sleep. RFC 7340, which defines kind of the problem statement of telephony security end to end, and was kind of, I think, the first RFC that paved the way for the others that we now know as Stir and Shaken. It's a phenomenal RFC, and it does a great job walking through the different use cases and how complex the problem is. All right, so let's switch back. We had left on the table this whole concept of stir and shaking and how it might affect smishing. What would that look like from a technical perspective? So full disclosure, there's a depth of research I haven't done on the smishing resolution side. But I think one thing smishing has that is a little bit of an advantage is some of the carriers already have their proprietary communication standards that are much more secure and that transcend SMS, such as iMessage is a great example. The level of effort to spoof SMS, very low. I'm sure there's ways to do it, but I don't know of any valid or easy ways to spoof iMessage, for example, beyond just actually phishing the Apple account and taking ownership of it. There's no bulk categorical easy way to do it that I'm aware of. So I think a lot of the research done for Stir and Shaken and the same concepts of having a trust hierarchy. And I mean, ultimately, what I think they all need to go to 
is a paradigm where we have a certificate bound to number ranges or account ranges. And those, if you don't have that valid certificate, your message is not trusted. And I think that's the general concept that will eventually work its way towards eliminating smishing too. The question becomes, do we get there soon or is it a long ways out? Right. So source IP address, source phone number, source, you know, caller ID field, whatever. If I'm claiming to be X or purporting to come from X or I am coming from X, there needs to be a certificate that says, yes, he's X and yes, he's legit. And here it goes. No matter what that origin might be. That makes perfect sense. I like the vision. I love the idea. I'm not sure <laughs> how quickly we'll get there, but I love it, man. This is this is great that you've done so much research on this, and I, I appreciate your disclaimer, but clearly you've done quite a bit of reading. Uh, dis <laughs> despite the reading you've not done, you've done quite a bit already. All right, so I think we've kind of covered the basics on vishing and smishing. We've talked about stir and shaking, so let's switch gears a little bit. I always love to get to know people a little bit better. I'm going to ask you a more personal question now. What keeps you going in cybersecurity? Why do you get out of bed every morning and keep waking up and saying, hey, I'm going to go do more cybersecurity. You talked about how you got into it and got thrilled by it, and now you've made it to CISO, but what keeps you going? Well, I love the question, and it's fun technical challenges like this. I mean, any field I worked in before this, I got bored with. The boredom would set in. It would feel like a bit of monotony after a while, and there hasn't been a moment of that since I got into working in cybersecurity. It's just, it's so much fun, and stir and shaken. And this discovery are a great example because this all started with a massive vishing campaign that, again, wasn't dangerous in this case. It was more of a headache. And that exploration led to this cool, fun topic that a few years ago I didn't even know existed. So I feel like in cybersecurity, we're constantly challenged. And those attacking, those attempting to commit crimes define a playbook of what we're going to learn over, over any given year or two. And it's always a fun challenge and a puzzle to unravel and a great community of people to work to unravel it together. Fantastic. That's interesting. You name community, you name challenges, you name lack of boredom, which I'll say the lack of boredom is probably translated to every day there's something new and different in cyber, right? Yep. I'm cataloging. I'm actually going to, believe it or not, I'm going to geek out here a little bit. Every single guest I ask that question at the end of the show and every single guest over the course of the first year of the podcast, I'm going to literally produce a chart on what everybody's answer was. You're the second person to say community. You're probably the fourth or fifth to say that that lack of boredom every day, something new. It's going to be interesting to collate this and see that, but I'm so grateful you brought up community because that is such a vital thing. And I think it's part of how you got in, right? You went to DEF CON and you realized this isn't just folks doing cyber stuff. There was a community around cyber. And I think that is so vital and so important. And, and a lot of folks, I think, forget how important that is. I mean, you and I met because we're part of a security community, right? Definitely, Yeah. Community is everything, and if we try to solve this problem alone in silos, we're bound to fail. But if we work together and share ideas, intelligence, and knowledge across you know, many people working on many things, you know, we have a fighting chance. Oh, I love that. I love that. Together we win. Uh, rising tide lifts all boats, right? We've got to help each other out here and, and pull each other up and, and get each other through this together. And you're right about silos. Uh, even just within organizations, I've seen different security teams trying to solve things in silos, right? This is red versus blue ultimately has to become purple teaming if it's going to succeed. And it's because of that need for breaking down those silos and doing the communication. Well, listen, Mike Manrod, CISO at Grand Canyon Education. Thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now.